If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Trust me, that's what I'm using. Let me explain all about it. It's free. Who doesn't like free? There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone and computer. No easier way. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the listening devices. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Who doesn't love money? It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, and welcome to the Macabre Family Podcast. I am your host, Stephanie, and today I am here with a very special last-minute guest host who is very, very reluctant to be here, but he's a good doobie, so he is here. That would be my husband, Nathan. Hello. (laughs) As you can see, he is thrilled to be here. So today we will be talking about John Jubert. He was an Eagle Scout and a serial killer. Now, before we begin, besides what you read of the script the other day, when I thought I was going to be recording with Kirsten and I wanted you to proofread for me, do you know anything about this guy? Negative. All right, so I am going to tell you the tale of John Jubert. Before we begin, though, I do want to put out a warning that there will be some graphic stuff in here and I will be reading directly from the trial transcripts from what um, John Jubert said to the police, word for word, and what the ME said about the murders. So be warned, this isn't going to be flowers and unicorns today. It is going to be pretty rough. John Joseph Jubert was born July 2nd, 1963 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. He was the oldest child of Joseph and Beverly. John has a younger sister, Jane, who was born in 1965. By all accounts, John was a highly intelligent child. Later IQ tests would put him at A123, although I would say he's more book smart than street smart. Wanting to be a part of the community, he joined the Boy Scouts where he thrived. Were you a Boy Scout? I was. Did you like it? I liked the Pinewood Derby. That was about it. Is that where you build the car? Yeah, and it goes down the ramp. Do you get in the car, or is it just a little car? It's like about six inches long. Oh, okay. I'm thinking like in the Little Rascals, and they have the car, the go-kart thing they built. Oh, yeah, that is another derby. I don't know what that's called, though. He would later become an Eagle Scout, which only 4% of Boy Scouts have made it since the start of Boy Scouts of America. So, since the beginning of the Boy Scouts, only 4% have ever became Eagle Scouts. And I do know being an Eagle Scout helps you get into anything pretty much. You can get into good colleges, you can go get really good jobs. But it doesn't get you into parties. <laughs> it definitely does not. I don't think you want to party with this guy. <laughs> exactly. Um, he later would become an assistant scout leader, which is very unnerving knowing about his crimes, which you will be hearing about shortly. When John was six years old, his father Joseph had finally had enough of Beverly's domineering and controlling ways, and he divorced her. After the divorce, though, John's father was no longer able to see uh, his children. 
uh, Beverly cut completely all ties with him. So after the divorce, I don't think they saw them more than a handful of times. Not only did she not allow her children to see their father, they didn't want, she didn't want them seeing anybody. She didn't want them having any friends. She didn't want them doing anything fun. Nothing. She had a bad temper and she would take it out on John constantly. John's home life was miserable for him and so was school. John was very small in stature and as I said before, he had an above average IQ. So he's bullied quite a lot. He didn't have any friends and kept to himself mostly. When John was 11, his mother up and moved the family to Portland, Maine. So they moved from Lawrence, Massachusetts to Portland. And more specifically, the Oakdale neighborhood. At the time of the move, John wanted to make a new start, try to make friends. That's when he became a Boy Scout. And he also got a newspaper route to earn some money so he could help pay for his tuition for Chevers High School, which was an all-boys Catholic school in Portland. Although he wanted to make a new start, John couldn't overcome the darkness he was feeling inside. John has confessed that it was around this time in his childhood he started having fantasies about murdering people on the street and murdering his babysitter and cannibalizing her. So, eating her flesh. He was 16 and thinking about eating somebody? Oh, 16? No. He's 11. 11? Yes. I thought about Kit Kats when I was 11. <laughs> I was not thinking about eating people. I was thinking about eating Reese's which my mom didn't let me have. We had fruit. If you want a snack, you eat fruit. <laughs> in December 1979, he started putting to action his darkest thoughts in a series of random attacks. Six-year-old Sarah Canty was playing in her front yard when a man on a bicycle rode by and stabbed her with a pencil. He said her screams made him feel alive and excited. And by excited, adults will know what I'm talking about. By the time her parents came outside, he was gone. Although there was no permanent physical damage, I can only imagine the physical, uh, physical, <laughs> psychological trauma that would cause a young six-year-old girl. Wait, Wait a minute. Go ahead. This guy was saying he was getting a hard-on because he stabbed somebody? Yes. So at the age of around 16, yes, he was getting sexual gratification by stabbing somebody and hearing them scream in pain. Yeah, he's a psychotic, disgusting piece of shit. In January 1980, Vicki Goff, a 27-year-old woman, was walking along the Deering Avenue toward the USM campus, which is the University of Southern Maine, from people that aren't from around here. A young man grabbed her from behind and stabbed her in the side with a knife. While he did this, he covered her mouth so she couldn't scream for help. Thankfully, before any more damage could be done, he fled the scene and Vicki was able to get help. So apparently when he stabbed her, he was not going for the hard-on effect because he covered her mouth from screaming? Yeah, I think he was trying to kill her, to be honest. Interesting. Yeah, because you'll see in March of the same year, so he's ramping up December, January, March. This is the third attack. Michael with him was walking down uh, Deering Avenue. He was a nine-year-old boy. A young man riding a bicycle lured him to the woods and began asking him personal questions they don't get into the personal questions but i can only imagine i mean he's almost 17 at this point michael uncomfortably answered the questions and the man told him he could leave as soon as michael turned around the man grabbed him from behind and cut his throat with a knife luckily michael was able to get away from the man he did need 12 stitches to close up the wound 
since at the time these were all unsolved, they called him the Oakdale Slasher. The reason we know that this guy did it is because he did confess to these crimes when he was arrested later on in the story. These attacks uh, in such a short period of time are a clear indication of somebody gearing up to commit more harsh attacks. So, in my personal opinion, I think that he actually wanted to kill nine-year-old Michael. He did slit his throat. And that if he didn't get away in time, he would have killed him. When John Jubert was eventually arrested for the crimes we will be talking about in a few, he did admit about these attacks and admitted that this was his practice run. A year after the attack on Michael, John graduated from Shevers High School and became a freshman, freshman at Norwich University in Vermont. Did you used to go party at Norwich? No, it was Keene State. I know a bunch of kids that I went to high school with that went to Norwich. After less than a year, John failed right out of college since he didn't have anybody paying attention to him because his mom was on his ass constantly. He stopped going to classes. He stopped doing any work. He just didn't give a shit anymore. Um, after he left the school, he started looking for work and found nothing. So in 1982, he joined the Air Force. Before we get to the last half of the episode, I do want to warn everybody again that the next bit is going to be pretty rough. So The warning's out there. Enter if you dare. So, Richard Ricky Stetson was an 11-year-old boy. He had red hair and freckles, and he loved to go jogging. So, on August 22, 1982, he was going to do what he loved. He left his home at 7.45 p.m., to go on a three and a half mile jog along Back Cove Trail in North Portland, Maine. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. Kids, eleven. Yes. And he's planning out three and a half mile run. Well, it's a it's a trail and it's three and a half miles. So it's like eleven a, years old. I was playing with Hot Wheels and wondering if I can go out and shoot my BB gun. Not, hey, I should probably go for a three and a half mile run. Okay, well, our kid literally will just run up and down the road. For no reason. <laughs> That's a little bit different. At 11 years old, I lived in Lebanon on a dirt, long-ass road, and my mom let me ride my bike all down, up and down the road. No qualms about anything. But you're in Maine. You're 11. He's in Maine and not 11. You should be begging your parents to try to ride something with a motor on it, not, hey, I want to go run. We, we don't run up here unless it's from a serial killer. Well, I rode a bicycle. <laughs> the trail was populated with people on bikes, other joggers, and walkers. So, realistically, you should have been safe. There was other people around, people on their bikes. I mean, it's August. It's beautiful out. Everybody's out enjoying the warmth of the air. You know, the last couple sun rays of the day. A lot of people on the path did see Ricky jogging as his red hair stood out. Ginger. <laughs> he was adorable. These people also witnessed a young man riding a bicycle very closely behind Ricky. They did notice how closely he was riding but didn't think anything about it and moved on. That is the one thing that sticks in my head is that there's a guy 20 years old about riding a bicycle right behind this kid jogging. 
my thought is if I saw that would be there's his parents making sure he's fine or his older sibling but this was in the 1980s people didn't notice things and if they did they didn't say anything <laughs> when it had gotten dark and Ricky hadn't came back his parents were really worried and called the police to report him as missing unfortunately Ricky's parents were confirmed the next morning when a motorist discovered Ricky's body in a grassy area just off the jogging path where he was running. The young boy had been brutally murdered. Now I'm going to get into how he was murdered. It's not pleasant and neither will the other ones be. It's going to be rough. I just want to let you know because it's going to be a little uncomfortable. Ricky was strangled both manually and with a ligature. Manually is somebody used their hands ligature is they used rope a tie something like that not only was he strangled he was also stabbed multiple times in the stomach and there were bite marks present on his right calf in an unheard of act at the time this guy took a knife and gouged where he had bit the young boy because he didn't want them to take his dental impression Although, doing so, he made a big mistake because in all the cases he would do the same thing and this would become a signature watch. Any true crime person knows usually a serial killer has some type of signature, something that they do with each victim that shows basically who the heck they are. But this is back in 82, right? Who the hell knew about dental records back then? Yeah, well... To, in order to get a dental impression, they'd have to have a forensic dentist look at the teeth. It's a whole thing, which we will find out how he knows that because that actually is in <laughs> coming out. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Go ahead. A dental forensic? It's a forensic dentist. Okay, okay so there's like a super geek cop is what you're calling them. No, it's the, the detective. It is a dentist that does forensic, like it, you know how the TV show Bones, she's a forensic anthropologist. So it's kind of like Dexter. That He's just a blood splatter guy. Blood splatter analyst. Although somebody was arrested for Ricky's murder, he was quickly let go as his teeth impressions did not match. So with no leads, Ricky's case went cold and our killer left Maine to carry out more of his dark thoughts. In December 1982, John moved from Maine to Bellevue, Nebraska, where he was stationed at the Offutt Air Force Base. Oh Air Force Base. Air Force. <laughs> John was trained as a radar technician and joined the Boy Scout troop as an assistant scout leader. Because remember, he was an Eagle Scout. This won't be good. He's literally a wolf in sheep's clothing there. I'm sure the families of the Boy Scout troop look back and are terrified by what could have happened at any point with that psychopath there. 13-year-old Danny Joe Ebrill was a bright and happy young boy. He had wavy blonde hair and bright blue eyes. He got a job delivering newspapers so he could buy things for his most prized possession, his bicycle. 13-year-old, probably, would be my prized possession would have been my bike. Yeah, but who the hell pimps out a bike? You really? So you never stuck a baseball card in your spokes? You never painted your bike or stuck stuff on it to make it look cooler? No, I just built dirt hills and jumped over them. You Portsmouth kids are weird. You really never put a baseball card in your spokes to make it sound like a car? 
No, but we actually did make fun of a kid in our neighborhood that did do that. Yeah, look at the Portsmouth kid ended up with the main girl. <laughs> on September 18th, 1983, Danny got up early on that Sunday to deliver newspapers on his route. When Danny did not return home after his newspaper route, his parents became worried and called the police. A large-scale search was started in Danny's bicycle, and almost all his papers were found near the fourth house on his route, so right at the beginning of his route. Not only were the local police involved in the search for Danny, but also the FBI. Danny's body was found three days later on September 21st. Again, we're going to go into the details of his murder, so if you need to go ahead a few seconds, I completely understand. Danny was found, his feet and hands were bound together, and his mouth was covered with tape. The rope that was used to bind Danny's arms and legs, though, was very unique. The detectives consulted with experts, and they all agreed it was not rope they'd ever seen before. It was composed of a hundred different colored yarns, all wrapped into one, and on the inside and the outside was white. Like I said, Eagle Scouts don't go to parties. <laughs> Meaning that if they found that very specific rope, they would be able to tie it to whoever, you know. They find somebody with that rope, they're going to say, all right, fella. Obviously, if he used it, though, he knew he was not going to be, a, you know, a suspect. Well, yeah, I mean, he's not from here. Um... He was undressed except for his undershorts, so boxers, I guess. But he was not sexually assaulted at all. He was, though, stabbed multiple times on his body, including one on the back of his neck. Also, there was a wound covering the back of his left thigh that was 11 inches wide. And it appeared that this guy tried to cover his tracks again and dug into that mark on his thigh. They also He also carved what appeared to be a star in the young boy's chest. Christopher Walden was a 12-year-old boy with bright blonde hair and a big smile. In the early morning of December 5th, Christopher was walking to school. A tan-colored car approached him, and a young man got out of the car and appeared to have an exchange with Christopher. Christopher then got into the man's car, and they left the area. When Christopher didn't arrive at school, he was reported missing. A large Gale search was then called. A woman walking her dog thinks she saw Christopher get abducted and told the police of the man and how he drove a tan-colored car with the license plate that started with the letter R. Why, if you think you saw somebody get abducted, do you not say anything? So I'm walking my dog. Some guy is talking to this kid, and the kid gets into this kid, guy's car. You're not questioning that? I don't know. Could it be the boy's uncle? Hey, what's going on? My favorite nephew. Hey, I'm heading to your house. Let's go. He's going to school, and the woman said she thought he had a knife, but she it happened too quick so she couldn't be sure. Yeah, hey, you know, I'm outside of a car in public in the morning. Here's a knife. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get in the car. No. Two days later, two men out hunting discovered Christopher's body in a wooded area about three miles from where Danny was found less than three months earlier. Christopher's body was frozen and covered in snow. Like Danny, Christopher was only dressed in his undershorts. He was not bound, though. He was stabbed multiple times, and his throat had been cut very deeply. The odd star pattern was also carved into his skin on his chest. He also had bite marks that had been gouged, so they would be harder to trace. Or so John Jubert thought. 
Due to the fact that the murders were so brutal in nature and done to children, the Nebraska detectives called upon the FBI for help. A very famous FBI profiler went to Nebraska to work on the case. We know of him now from Mindhunter, although his name in the show was Bill Tench. In real life, he's Robert Ressler. I know you didn't watch Mindhunter. I did not. Robert Ressler is the man known for coining the term serial killer in America. Robert came to Nebraska to do a profile on the killer who committed the crime. He came to the conclusion that the, because Danny was found so close to the road that the killer was not very strong and small in stature and was a- unable to carry Danny's body very far. The location also made Robert believe that the killer was unfamiliar with the area as someone who knew the area would be able to uh, conceal the body in a better place. The evidence from Christopher's murder helped Robert in his profile as well. He believed that the killer of the two boys was involved in an organization where he spent a lot of time with team boys, such as a sports coach or a scout leader. He also believed that since the killer tried to cover his tracks by gouging up the bite marks, that he must have had knowledge of criminal investigations, possibly by reading detective magazines or novels. So the famous FBI profiler thought just like you. How would this guy know to do something to stop the investigation? Unless he had knowledge of it from before. What did he study in college? He was only there for less than a year. It was nothing to do with what he... They will find something in his car or his house that clears it all up. What, do they have a forensic scientist for dummies book? No, they don't. Possibly by reading detective magazines or novels. Forensic scientist for dummies. (laughs) There was a composite sketch done of the man that witnesses saw with Christopher that morning. He was a small man, not much taller than Christopher, with dark hair and eyes, and he was between the ages of 18 and 25. So, I hope you guys are ready to find out how this piece of shit human being was caught. Are you? Yes. At this time, all the police had was a composite sketch in the profile that Robert did. They didn't have any actual suspects or anyone they were looking at. That would change on the morning of January 11, 1984. A teacher, Barbara Weaver, at Aldersgate Preschool was getting ready for the day. As she was doing that, she looked out the window and saw a car pull up close to the school windows. He stopped for a moment and looked directly at the teacher. Once they made eye contact, he backed up and drove off. A few minutes after this awkward exchange, the teacher noticed the car had come back. The man didn't drive up to the window this time, but sat back a bit, sat in the car, and just stared at her. The teacher thought this was really, really strange. I mean, it's a school. A lone person in a car keeps coming in and out of the parking lot. So she decided to take down the license plate of the car. As she was writing it down, the car once again backed up and left. Several minutes later, again, the car came back. This time, the man got out of the vehicle and approached the school. He came to the front door and asked the teacher for directions. She gave him the directions, and he claimed he did not understand the directions at all, and asked to use the phone. She told him there was no phone inside the school room to use. At that, he pushed her into the room, told her to get back in there or I'll kill you. The teacher, scared for her life, pushed the man out of the way and ran past him to a house on the street using the phone to call the police to report the incident. Barbara gave the police all the information about the car and the plate number. 
She also informed the police that the man looked like the composite sketch that had been circulating the papers in the news for the past month. Detectives followed up and were able to run the plate number, and it came back to 20-year-old John Jubert. So, 20 years old, he's assaulted three people in Maine, killed a boy in Maine, and killed two people in Nebraska. I don't... I don't understand what breaks in somebody's brain to be such a shitbag, but I think he was just born that way. At the time, he was living at the Air Force Base. Initially, they only wanted to question him about the incident at the school. Soon, though, John gave the admissions about the two murders of the young boys. So, without any coercing at all, he just up and admitted to the murders. This resulted in a search of his room on base in his car. What they found in both places helped prove what John had already confessed to, but also helped prove the profile that Robert Ressler had made. They found a piece of rope that was exactly the same rope that Danny was tied up with, that unique rope. So like I said earlier, if they find this rope and they have a suspect and the suspect has the rope, it's pretty much pretty obvious. They also found softcore detective magazines in his room. Softcore? I don't know what that means. I thought that was like a porn thing. Apparently, maybe it's like a porn detective magazine. So, anyways, I was going to read the transcript from the court case in Nebraska that detailed the crimes and John's confession and the medical medical examiner stuff, but thinking about it, I decided it was just... It's necessary to the story, but it's not necessary for everybody to hear. It's rough, it's uncomfortable, and it's just... The ramblings of a psychopath explaining how he kidnapped and killed two boys. And it's, I guess it's just not something that we really need to go into. On January 12, 1984, John Jubert was arrested and charged with the murders of Danny Joe Ebrill and Christopher Walden. He pled guilty to all charges. While he was in custody, John underwent several psychiatric evaluations. They concluded that he suffered from schizoid personality disorder, which they character as characterized as a lack of interest in other people or forming a relationship and desire to isolate oneself. Now, Nathan, I don't know you do telling me that that sounds exactly like me because I can see your face. <laughs> Those with this disorder may come across as cold and having no empathy and rarely show emotion, which I show plenty. <laughs> Another thing was he was coined as having sadistic tendencies, which clearly was a thing. At 11 years old, he was thinking about murdering his babysitter and eating her. He told the detectives that if he was let out, he would most certainly commit the same crimes again. He couldn't help the way he was, and he enjoyed the killings and torture. So he's telling them he's ready to die, pretty much. You'd think that, wouldn't you? By admitting to the detectives that if you let me out, I will commit all these crimes again. Right? <laughs> and this is why I hate this human garbage can so much. Because... When he does get to death row, he goes on to death row and he will be killed. What he says up leading up to when he dies is the complete opposite of what he told the detectives. Now at this time in 1984, he was only charged and convicted of the murders of Danny and Christopher. The case in Maine of Ricky Stetson was still unsolved and completely cold. That would all change in 1990. A police officer from Portland, Maine, was attending a presentation at the FBI Academy in Quantico 
led by none other than Robert Ressler. The presentation was on profiling the killer of the boys in Nebraska. The police officer noticed a lot of similarities to the case of Ricky, especially the bite marks that had been gouged out. The officer then approached Robert at the end of the seminar and talked to him about the Portland case. They looked into John's past because, like the officer, Robert felt this case was were too similar and that they had to be related. They found out that before John moved to Nebraska, he lived in Portland, Maine, which I already told you guys. They got his dental imp impressions, and a forensic dentist was able to confirm that the bite marks were that of John Jubert. So now we get on to the trial here in Maine. At first, John fought coming back to Maine. He didn't want to be tried and convicted for another murder since he was already on death row. Once, though, he found out that Maine did not have the death penalty, he decided to come to Maine for the trial. He appealed a bunch of times saying that Maine didn't give him the right of a speedy trial and this, that, and another thing. He also tried to appeal his uh, conviction in Nebraska because he did not want to face the electric chair. He did not want to die at all. He did everything he could to stop that. June 26, 1996, John Jubert did death row interview. I watched the video and all I wanted to do was punch him in the fucking face the whole time. He is so full of shit and it's just absolutely disgusting. Although right at his arrest, he said he would kill again if let out, he was singing a whole different tune. Less than a month before his death day, he claimed the reasons for all the murders were his troubled past and it wasn't his fault. In his own words, he says, the obsession, the fantasies, they were all rehearsals. Eventually, I was driven to the point where I could not help but carry them out. Right after he says that, though, he goes on to claim he was a reformed man. And he had always changed. And that if he was released, he would never do any of this again. He also, disgustingly, begged the families of the victims to help him overturn his death row status. If somebody killed my child and then came to me and said, please do not let me die, I would happily do it for him. I would, oh, it's so gross. He said he would sign any paper, do anything to be able to stay in jail forever and not be killed. So here he is, shaking now in his pants, crying like a little girl. What an Eagle Scout. <laughs> like a little girl, huh? This little girl will make you cry. I honestly believe in reform, and I think people should have the ability to become better people and change who they are. Except for somebody like this, who is very obvious he did the crime. Very obvious that he meant to do the crime. This is all him. He started out stabbing people at the age of 11. And did not change a single thing about himself. Or try to get help for himself once he started doing that. He literally got a thrill out of making people scream in pain. He killed children. Little boys under the age of 13. I really don't think that there would have been any, any way at all to reform him at all. I think asking the families for help to stop from him getting killed is the most disgusting thing I've ever heard in my life. He has no other options, so he's trying to dig at whatever he can because he's such a coward. He is a coward. On July 16th, 1996, this coward died by electric chair at the age of 33. 
And there's our lovely cat, Sirius Black, meowing for you all. The families of all the victims were able to forgive him in the end. The father of Danny said it was his faith that helped him heal. He did say, though, it took a very long time for him to get to that point. I honestly, I don't know if I personally could ever forgive somebody for murdering anyone in my family. I mean, we have a 12-year-old son. Do you think you could forgive a single person for hurting him? Uh, fakely, I could forgive them so I could get a face-to-face. I get mad when Mikhail gets picked on. Like, But that's just me. You don't mess with the cub unless you want to tussle with the mama bear. And that is the story of John Jubert. I would like to say thank you to my quiet guest host, Nathan. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> I want to thank you all for listening today. I know this was a tough one. I had a really hard time researching it. I had to keep taking breaks to look at cartoons or something that wasn't this. Unlucky for me, though, I got to see some photo crime scene photos that were on a blog I was looking at for research on this. It was it was brutal, it was awful. This person, I hate to say I'm glad, is no longer with us and got to get a metal thing stuck on his head and get electrocuted until he died. As macabre as that sounds, I'm glad this person is no longer with us to do these terrible, awful things again. I will have a new host next week and a new story, a little more light-hearted than this was. I love you all, my macabre family. I also want to do a special shout-out today to my cousin, D. I want to thank you so much for all your support, all your shares, for all you've done to help me get this out there. She's been my hype woman, everybody. (laughs) It's been amazing. Also, I want to thank all my listeners. You all rock, and I so appreciate it so much. Thank you. See you next week.